The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation. Remember your training and fly the airplane. But you knew that. So, you're having a hard time landing. There's like bad weather. The visibility is low. The clouds are low. I don't know the exact details. All I know is you've tried a couple of different times to get on the ground. You can't manage to get on the ground on the runway safely. So what do you decide to do? Let's land in the water instead. Have you seen this story? This is yeah, I heard about this. And and so uh, let's see now if I can actually open up the the uh, the story here. It's um come on. Oh, it's a story from Avweb. Uh, it was a, a medical team, a pay, <laughs> so it's like gets better, better or worse and worse or better and better, depending on your perspective here. All right, this was a medical uh, uh, flight, and and it's like it's bad enough that you're sick enough to require medical air evacuation, but then yeah, you yeah, land in the water. You're swim out of the airport. I know. Um, the crew, a medical team, the patient, and the patient's spouse aboard a medical evacuation flight from Samoa to Australia were uninjured after the Pell Air Westwind jet ditched in the ocean in weather that prompted the pilot to ditch rather than trying uh, for the airport at Norfolk Island. So, I mean, all kidding aside, can you guys explain this to me? How would ditching be a better choice than... Than obscured, hilly, mountainous terrain? I guess. I guess. Uh, You uh, you know there are no mountains out there. Um, You you can get down. You you know how far you can get down. uh Uh-huh. That you're not going to hit anything. Now, what I don't know here, I don't know the geography. I don't know the topography. Um, For example... If he can get down low enough to see the water and land on it, where's the runway in relation to the shore, for example? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, you know, well, while we're in the second-guessing mode. Um, I, where I were they know. trying I mean, to get into again? They were trying to get Some, into Norfolk Island, which apparently is in Australia. And uh, Are you sure there's no uh, high terrain there? Well, I'm not. I, I believe that I'm was not an sure issue. about that. Yeah, I, I believe that was an issue. Uh, the uh, challenge of the terrain in trying to land there, uh, IMC, and wasn't it after sunset? Uh, let's see. Now, deteriorated fuel as fuel yeah, dwindled. He made the hard decision. It worked out. They performed an intricate landing on water in darkness, resulting in evacuation of everyone safely and quickly. A boat was on the scene quickly, and while everyone aboard was taken to Norfolk Island Hospital to be checked, they were all unhurt. The medical team resumed care of the patient in the hospital, and arrangements are being made to get the patient back to Australia. Presumably, not by airplane. No, it's a joke. Um, so well, I'm looking. I'm look, I Google Map this while we're talking here. Yeah, and and uh, looking at uh, back out of that. Um, the uh, the runway is is kind of in the center of the island. Okay. Um, of course, there's nothing. Or actually, there's two runways. Um, 
And, uh, well, it's not really in the center of the island. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. It yeah. doesn't seem to be that much terrain on this island. The island doesn't seem to be that big to begin with. Well, the island's highest point uh, is Mount Bates, which is 319 meters above sea level. Now, that's thousand feet. 1,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess the other factor islands is... Islands in the Pacific aren't generally atolls. And and you know little little dots on the map are even tops of something, uh, but a lot of the islands in the Pacific uh, have less than even terrain. If they've got enough run, you know, space for an airport, there are exceptions. Uh, but uh, the story, the way that I read it and the way I heard it passed around was that uh, the pilot was looking at an airport that wasn't working out for his instrument approach. Uh, no really good suitable terrain to look for to ditch outside the airport, and the alternative into control flight into terrain. I mean, really control flight into terrain. Yeah, uh, was to put it in the water. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I can. I mean, I can see that. I, it, we, he may have had an equipment problem. The the I presume that the aircraft the airport is equipped with an ILS. If it's not, then you're talking, you know, a higher higher approach minimums. Um, you know, I can see a situation where you can't get in, and you don't have gas to go somewhere else. And uh, what are you going to do? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we're going to call that the off-field landing of the week. A little bit non-standard one, but uh, I guess I guess when you're off-field, you're off-field, baby. Yeah, man. Yeah, off-field is for sure. That that we could check that box without any issue. <laughs> I guess my final comment, though, on this West Wind ditching is, yeah, um, he, he needed Der- John Wayne to slap him around a little bit. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. So, well, exactly why? Maybe they would have pressed on and, and found the runway, and, and you know had like you know three gallons of gas left. Or That's something. right. It's no. down there. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it, David. It's you right. said you found a, a a better story, a better description of the whole situation. Well, this comes from a website, uh, a news operation called Nine News, from New South Wales, Australia. Okay. Uh, and uh, and, and the lead is a CareFlight. That's a company name. A CareFlight jet piloted by a Clio bachelor. That's a name of a town and an adjective. The guy's from Clio, New South Wales. He's a bachelor of the year contestant. He was a bachelor of the year contestant. Okay. Is, is there a connection, you think? Our, our, uh, uh, I, I don't really think so. Are married uh, men better pilots? Is that what you're saying? No, no. Uh, this guy's getting praised up and down the uh, triangle of uh, New Zealand, New South Wales, Norfolk Island in Australia, New South Wales, Australia, for uh, the uh, uh, the skill and, uh, and and execution of a landing that otherwise they think would have killed everybody on board by trying to force it onto the island. So, you know, it's kind of one of those, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the guy that's saying, you know, the ocean looks really smooth right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get on, on on a couple of levels, I get it. Um, at the end of the day, though, it worked. Yeah, that's right. Like I said, off your landing everybody, the week. Everybody swam away. Yeah. yeah. And my only right. big question, as a patient or the patient's partner, as the story described the the, the two, 
is, is this gurney a flotation device? <laughs> no, here's what I want. Somebody unstrap my butt real quick. Because I mean, visibility aside, all right, you probably can't see the surface of the water very good at night. Jeb, what do they teach you about night landings in seaplane school? They the same thing they teach you in in wheeled plane school, where if you get down, you're close to the ground, you turn on the landing light, you don't like what you see, you turn off the landing light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, off field landing of the week, good job. Any any landing you can swim away from is a good one. That's uh, right. Um, let's see now. In other wacky news of the of the week, this is actually from about a week and a half ago. Um, so there was that exciting day that the FAA's computers went out, and uh, suddenly people couldn't what file flight plans, get flight plans. The whole system just went all to pot. The the, the NADEN system, uh, National Air Data Interconnect. I don't know what it stands for, but basically it's the the system that transfers flight plan information uh, back and forth between various facilities. It does other things too, but that's the that's the NADEN system. And according to the postmortem on this, uh, the router failed. A router failed. Yeah. Um, why yep. they didn't figure this out, and why it took them all day to, well, most of the day anyway, to to uh, to figure this out and, and replace the router or whatever whatever it was, I don't know. You know, a lot of people. Oh, this is why we need next gen. This is why we need to, no. This is why we need to get away from PC juniors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. That was well. You know how yeah. this scenario played a little, out a I mean, after the crash yeah. happened. After the crash happened, you know how this played out. Okay, the first thing that happens is, ring, 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 ring. Hello, IT. Hi, is this tech support? Uh, no, you need to call the other extension. Those guys aren't here right now anyway. Ring, ring. Is this a hardware problem ring, or a ring. software problem? Yeah. Ring, ring. Hi, is this tech support? Uh, yeah, stand by. I'll transfer them. You don't mind holding, do you? Have you tried, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? It's a joke. Oh, no, no, no. They haven't, they haven't asked that question yet because they're still trying to get somebody to take the call. Yeah. Yeah, um, maybe that's not uniquely an FAA problem. That's that's your general computer support issue. But uh, so it's that simple. There's no big drama. There's no there's no uh, kind of juicy uh, 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 you know smoking gun here. It's just they had a networking failure and it just it, it propagated propagated through the whole system. And, and it's gone away because the FAA had a really good day on Thanksgiving <laughs> or the day yeah, before. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah, this this I was out and about in the system here the last few days, and and uh, uh, things did seem to work fairly well. Uh, um, it's not the first time something like this has happened. Obviously, it won't be the last. I was involved back in '91, I guess it was, um, in, a, in a situation where I was trying to get out of Newark back to uh, Washington National, and um, a backhoe cut like the main AT and T trunk line for like the New York metropolitan area or something, but took out the FAA's uh, communications um, for the wow. for basically the, tri- the tri-state area uh, in the New York City, uh, New York City tri-state area. And um, same kind of thing. They couldn't transmit flight plans. There was no communication between facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And um, standing around the gate, uh, um, whatnot. The the crew climbs off the airplane. They're standing around the gate. I kind of sidled up to the FO and said, "Dude, you know, 
go VFR at 17.5, and you can see his eyes get wide. He, he kind of saunters over, kind of saunters over to the captain, and they have a little conversation. The captain starts shaking his head now. I said, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, company policy. We have to go IFR. Yeah, probably. I, it, that, it was, but I, I'm aware of other companies that do have the the the, um, the ability to go VFR in, in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, you're but, right. Uh, this this will happen again too. Yeah, this this will happen again, uh, and he ended up having to spend the night in, in Newark, which is you know kind of a, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm going to let you go. You can do whatever you want. I'm not getting involved in this one. Yeah, yeah what are you those of our about? listeners in the area know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, all right. So so that's like nothing exotic. No big smoking gun that we can get all all outraged about. They just had a networking problem, and it's going to happen again. Is what you're saying? Right. Yeah. All right. It will even and, with and, next. And year. the good news was, if you could go VFR at seventeen five, you could still go. That's right. Uh, but but even with next gen, we're going to have this problem. Yeah, this is going to happen. You know, someone's going to misplace a decimal point, or or you know something else, and the whole thing's going to come crashing down repeatedly. It's just a matter of when and how often. Sometimes the bits bite. Sometimes you're the bug. Sometimes you're the windshield. That's right. Sometimes you're the ball, sometimes you're the bat. Welcome, sure. folks, to episode 162 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. This is take two. I'll explain that in a minute. Take uh, two and a half. <laughs> that's right, take two and a half. We're recording this episode on, uh, let's see if I got this right, Sunday evening, November 29th, 2009, just a few days after uh, Thanksgiving. Hope and, you had a happy one. Yeah. And joining me here in the virtual hangar, uh, let's see now. First of all, is uh, I better go better get Jeb first because we're going to lose him in any second now. Jeb Burnside. <laughs> any moment. <laughs> it's one of these nights where we're on the verge of losing Jeb at any moment. Uh, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing this evening? I'm fine. I'm, I'm a little tired, but uh, a little bit too much Thanksgiving. But uh, other than that, uh, I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh you had a good time. I, I know you did some flying. I don't know what... Uh, it's flying, yeah. yeah. Uh, out to Arkansas and back. Just got back uh, about three hours ago. Just, oh, by the way, out to Arkansas oh, and back. You know, drop yeah. off a computer. And that's a story from yeah, last week. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Now, I uh, um, had a nice flight today. Uh, like four plus... I forget what it was. Four plus um, 30, maybe, or something like that out of, uh, out of Arkansas into... Uh, I stopped for gas uh, just up the road a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, had a tailwind for a change. Mm, good. Uh, so I take it this means yeah. you got all the oil cleaned out of the engine compartment. Well, you know, funny thing about that, yeah. I, I'm still kind of scratching my head because, I, and I, I, this is no lie, I had pools of oil, a couple of three quarts of oil, pooled in the in the uh, engine compartment of the uh, lower lower pool. That's Dave making noises. That's not the internet doing strange things. You know, it could be my Skype. You know, sending me messages or something. No, no, no. The voice, that's the Dave voice doing sound effects. Yeah. Okay. Um, so pools but, of oil. Yeah. So pools of oil in, in the in the engine compartment of the airplane, and listen, and throw it so disgusted, I threw down my my rag, walked away, locked the hangar, came back a couple of days later, and it was gone. <laughs> Love it when that happens. <laughs> I do too. My, this is my new, my, my latest theory of aircraft maintenance. You know, just walk away; it'll fix itself. <laughs> the elves came out and did. It. Yeah. So um, obviously, it, it, I had this huge um, 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 uh, tray, a uh, concrete uh, mixing tray. It's about four feet by two feet or something like that. that I routinely slide under the engine 
when I'm doing things like this. Yeah. And it had, you know, a quart or so of oil in it. So, But basically, I'm convinced that it just kind of drained into the belly. And uh, is as I fly the airplane, I'm slowly uh, lubricating the air through which I'm flying. Well, the airplane sure. the airplane's actually a little faster now. I don't know. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, okay. It's because you grease the wings. That's exactly right. Grease yeah. the wings. That's, That's right. right. That's right. And um, also out there. I, you know, yeah? Did put it back in the engine and, and all that kind of thing. I'm Pretty glad cool. to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. And also here in the virtual hangar tonight is uh, Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Oh, great. Just great. It's been a been a wonderful, lovely weekend. Stayed away from all the Black Friday shopping and stayed mm-hmm. away from all the Black Saturday shopping. And so far, I've managed to stay far away from all the Black Sunday shopping, too. Yeah. So. Now, apparently, tomorrow's Cyber Monday. This is the, the apparently the online e commerce world is trying to popularize yet another excuse to go shopping. And so they've. I know, and Hallmark is working on the cards. Yeah. So. Uh, Happy Cyber Monday, and and I've already got mine. It says I thought every Monday was cyber. <laughs> okay, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. So uh, everybody's Thanksgiving was good. Uh, David, what you guys doing? You you guys had Chinese food or something like that, right? Oh yeah, we went to our our favorite Asian buffet because they threw lobster onto the buffet, uh, and they were doing it again tonight too. But uh, uh, yeah, that was lovely, and uh, came back and had some homemade dessert and noshed on on uh, snacks that we normally wouldn't have in the house, and uh, caught up on some old movies and picked up a couple of new movies and worked on a book and walked the dog and fat, dumb, and lazy. And sounds good. Sounds good. We uh. My my gang, my family got together at my, my sister's house, and uh, my brother did the cooking this year. I've been doing the cooking for the past few years, but my brother cooked this year, and uh, we had a good old time. It was a, kind of a quiet Thanksgiving for us, but uh, but it was nice. And uh, it's not often that uh, all five of us, there's, there's five kids in the family, and it's not often these days that all five of us get together in the same room at the same time. So uh, it's, it's it was nice to do that, and it was good to see everybody. So it was a good Thanksgiving. Uh, let's see now. What's going on in the world? Um, so, and you who who is that again? I told I said my name. I did. You weren't Oop. paying attention. Oop. Yeah, Oop. I, I did. Um, so, listen. Uh, I'm going to talk about where this story came from a little bit later on. But uh, I was talking with some folks the other day, and someone suggested to me we were just kind of talking about you know the, the 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 business of aviation and and why LSAs aren't aren't you know why it's hard to find an LSA to rent and to learn in, and uh, and someone suggested that actually the Skycatcher is hurting LSA adoption. All right, and his reasoning yeah, behind this. Yeah. Uh, his, his reasoning, and then you can tell me what you think. His reasoning is that he said that all of the Cessna dealers around the country are contractually prohibited from carrying any other brand LSAs. And as a result, anybody who's a Cessna dealer isn't going to, you know, can't, like, carry a secondary brand or anything like that. Do you? Then I think you better accuse Cessna of hurting all of general aviation because I don't believe Cessna dealers are carrying anybody else's GA aircraft either. Uh, you know, there are some dealerships that are dealing in aircraft where the, uh, the home office 
doesn't mind if you, you know, cross-pollinate, particularly when you cross-pollinate in a pool where you're tapping stuff that doesn't compete with your own product. But in general, yeah, Cessna dealers don't carry Moonies and they don't carry Bonanzas. Although well, I don't that's a little different because when, why is that different? Because why is that different? Because when why you're ta- when you're talking about the the sort of major brands, or when you're talking about uh, 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 traditional general aviation aircraft, there's really only five or six, you know, big players um, uh, in terms of manufacturers, and so uh-huh. you know you you aren't going to have more than you aren't going to carry more than one of those. All right, but in the LSA world right now, at least for now, until the shakeout uh, happens, there's how many are there? There's ten or twenty different manufacturers of LSAs. Oh, right? more than that. Yeah, more than that. and yeah. and and now would be an ideal time for for big dealers to be picking up a little brand just to kind of fill up the fill out their line, so to speak. Big, right? big, big dealers aren't picking up in almost any of these LSAs, man. It's not like Cessna dealers would be swamping all, all over the place to to move into this if Cessna didn't. A offer a product and B kind of require them to carry it. Right. Well, and you know, by the way, this wouldn't be so bad if the Skycatcher was actually out. All right. Um, the problem is you've got all these dealers that that might that aren't even carrying one brand of LSA. All right. Let well, alone there you, two. There you go. There you go. And that has nothing to do with whether they're a Cessna dealer. And uh, has everything to do with their with their business decision making on other levels. I I, I can't categorize this as saying, oh, well, it's all because of one thing or another. It may be because they've got limited resources. It may be because they don't believe in the concept uh, and see it as competing with something else that they're trying to sell. Uh, there can be a lot of reasons for this. Uh, and and I agree with you. That there, there's a lot of opportunity here. And if you look around, there's been a lot of uh, dealers and, and new small businesses formed around uh, selling and distributing a lot of these light sport aircraft. Uh, it's not like the uh, not like the market is 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 lacking some significant numbers out there. Because I talk to lots of people, you probably do too, um, who are w- would like to who, who are potentially candidates for light sport training for sport pilot training, sure. and but they they literally cannot find anywhere within reasonable distance to go and do this and uh it's unfortunate uh and and i understand that and and i i think that that's going to change incrementally uh I, it, it will start to change as soon as cessna's got sky catchers in its dealer's hands because uh, that'll be the biggest single change that you're going to see uh imminently or in the past few years for that matter when all the uh Cessna Pilot Centers and the Sea Stars start stocking sky catchers and putting them in their flight syllabus. And when Cessna's new uh, light sport pilot program gets out of the developer's hands and into their hands and their dealer's hands, uh, I expect early in the coming year, uh, that's going to change. Yeah. Um, what is Cessna uh, saying um, that... Jeb, just let me ask this one question, and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, David, I think you may know this. What is Cessna saying uh, will be the number of air, sky catchers that will come off the line, uh, you know, in the first year or two years or whatever? How fast are I they going to make these things? I haven't heard a, 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 a firm number here recently, not since, uh, you know, well into the things tanking phase that we're in. Uh, they were looking at about 
three hundred a year at one point, uh, and they have firm orders for over a thousand of them now. How many Cessna Pilot Center, you know, Cessna dealers are there in the country? Oh, Fewer. I don't know that number anymore. More than three hundred? Less than three hundred? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. You get my point, I, I though. Was, I would. I would say less than three hundred. Yeah. Um, but there aren't going to be very many to go around. Is my point. You know? Yeah. D- Dave's point about um, uh, a trickle down, if you will, that um, um, in, as time rolls on, there will be more and more um, opportunities uh, for people to get training in, in LSAs is a good one. You know, near a major metropolitan area, it's it's no problem. You get out in the in the hustings, and and um, there are fewer and fewer LSAs available. Glory be, you know. Same thing happened with with um, Cirruses. Same thing happened with you know the same things going on now with seaplanes, uh, gliders, uh, maybe inversely you know, as far as gliders are concerned. Um, yeah, if you get a, if you want to get away from a Skyhawk or a Warrior um, and, and get some training or get some time in something, uh, you might have to uh, drive a little bit further or even rent a plane and go fly somewhere uh, to to uh, uh, to get the to, to get the airplane you're looking for. Um, well, of course, that doesn't work because we're talking about people who want to learn how to fly, and so. Well, okay, that's 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 understandable, and that's certainly a, a valid criticism. Um, people can always, however, you know, figure out a way to learn how to fly, uh, whether it's in an LSA or, or a Skyhawk or a Rag.150. Uh, I, I'm sympathetic, um, but I, I don't I don't I don't know that I buy into the uh, the Cessnas killing the LSA market. Uh, I mean, yeah, I I, I can't. There were too many of the LSA manufacturers that were quite literally near head over heels at the fact that Cessna is getting into the LSA market because of how it's going to help legitimize it and expand it through their own uh, use of it for their flight schools, through their own dealerships and and flight schools carrying the airplanes. and through the fact that they were able to uh, to land a thousand orders for the things before they uh, before they were out of the box, yeah. so yeah, okay. So, a uh, new subject, David. You uh, you found this interesting article. Uh, we've been talking about through the fence issues for uh, recently in, in in a couple of different episodes. Um, through the fence being the rules having to do with whether uh, residences and businesses that live adjacent to an airport are allowed to have a gate in the fence, um, either a pedestrian gate or even an airplane gate, um, and how the FAA doesn't like this, doesn't want uh, private businesses to to have through the fence access. And David, you found this uh, interesting article um, that seems to be the FAA explaining, in a very bizarre way, their thinking. You want to talk about this? Well, the articles by my old buddy uh, John Infanker, who's the uh, editorial director at Airport Business Magazine. And John's, you know, John's not a, a, an ingenue. He's been around for quite a while, and uh, he. Uh, ran a a blog posting on the airport business blog a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about the through the fence. And I picked up on part two uh, where he says the FAA's airports division offers some clarification following last week's blog, which generated a significant amount of interest. Uh, 
the FAA's uh, Director of Airport Compliance and Field Operations, explains that there's been no change in FAA policy on this since at least the 1980s. The reasons for the latest guidance letter, he says, is the FAA wanted to put together in one place the guidance on through the fence and was concerned due to recent residential developments being built or proposed at publicly funded airports. Uh, Right. And and, and the airport guy focuses on, uh, points out that the FAA's concerns are solely on uh, residential developments. They're fine with commercial ones. For some reason, it's okay to have a through-the-fence to do business. But if you want to live next to the airport and taxi through to use it, well, well, we just can't have people living next to airports. Yeah, that's right. Now you're getting to the meat of it. Well, and, and it just goes downhill from here. And I encourage all of you to listen to it. This is too long for me to read into. But John's bottom line here is pointing out the insanity in the conflict with FAA's own past practices where they've been a consultant on uh, private airport developments working through the fence at a public airport where they've been uh, involved in the planning, where they've encouraged it as in the past as a way to help keep an airport viable and thus open. Wow, what a concept, the FAA. Yeah. Freaking encouraging activity that will help keep airports open. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 this, this gentleman from the FAA, uh, and I'm going to give him a name here. He deserves that. Randall Fiertz, F-I-E-R-T-Z, Director of Airport Compliance and Field Operations at the FAA. To say that there's been no change in the FAA policy on this since at least the 1980s, for the FAA to have been uh, a participant in, a beneficiary from, an encourager of, through the fence, residential airport operations on so many instances in the past, and then come out with this blather that, well, it's really just the residential ones that trouble them. Because, you know, neighbors can change. People that fly could move out and people that don't fly move in and complain. Yeah, here's my. Well, yeah, that's easily handled with a codicil on the property that says you're moving on to an airport development. If you don't like living next to the noise of airplanes, shut the frack up and move elsewhere. Yeah, my my favorite paragraph. He uh, he's he, again he's talking about multiple other. You know, there are multiple what he what he characterizes as problems. He says the other problem is if an airport operator allows residential through the fen- through the fence, we're concerned. We being the FAA, we're concerned that it undermines their future capability of restricting residential development next to the airport. If the airport gives the okay for one type of residential, and we understand why people in aviation might want that, if someone else then wants to build a development on the other side of the airport, it undermines the ability to say no. I understand that, and I think that's really the crux of the problem here. That, that, uh, that you understand it is the crux of the problem. <laughs> that, that, that you understand that you understand that I understand is the crux of the problem. Yeah. I don't understand. Um, no, what? Go what ahead, Jeb. The FAA's problem is is they want to they don't want to be um, hemmed in by um, let's say non aviation residential development. Okay. They don't want that kind of development cropping up next to the airport, adjacent to the airport, downwind or upwind from the airport. And I can understand that. 
that's to me just a, a completely different problem, and um, one that they need to you know kind of broaden their their scope a little bit here to encompass. Reading down the uh, the comments uh, to this article, uh, one posted by an S Murdoch, who, who I take to be Sandy Murdoch, who I believe I know Sandy, I believe he was a, a former. Uh, uh, chief counsel at the agency back in the 80s. That's the, who um, it is. That's who it is. And, and uh, quoting from his comment, uh, the answer is not to prohibit TTFs, but to manage them. Restrictive covenants on the buildings in the TTF area can protect against later problems. Oddly enough, if the FAA tells the developer it wants to requ- what it wants in, to require in terms of noise, safety, Part 77, which is... Uh, uh, obstructions, etc., or or whatever the developers' lawyers will create rock solid terms that will promote, and, and the word promote is in caps, uh, promote aviation. Um, there are a ton of attorneys who would do it for free, and he's absolutely right. There's a win-win solution possible as long as the one-size-fits-all solution syndrome does not prevail, and I think that's what the whole problem is here, and the, what what is what is behind this TTF movement is trying to get the FAA to not promulgate a one-size-fits-all solution, but to develop something innovative and get away from this just-say-no mentality um, that, that the FAA and, and federal bureaucrats generally uh, um, are, are kind of saddled with here. Let me and, just make sure I... If, if, this, if this is indeed Sandy Murdoch, Sandy, you're absolutely right, and, and thank you for putting this into... Uh, uh, um, easily understood terms, even for even for an attorney. Yeah, let me just make sure I'm clear, and then we're going to move on here. Um, uh, this uh, Sandy Murdoch, if it's who you think it is, um, this is a an FAA staffer who believes former, that, former former staffer. Okay, that's what that's the distinction. And any but in any yeah, event, yeah. A, 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 an established person who thinks that there could be room for the FAA to to uh, uh, allow residential through the fence at at uh, FAA. At FA, that's another question I have here. Um, we're obviously not talking about private airports. Hidden River doesn't apply here. All right, um, are we talking about any airport that's taken FAA we're talking money? About airports. We're talking about airports that receive FAA funding, whether they are public, uh, publicly owned, public use, or privately owned, public use, or privately owned, privately operated. Okay. Private use. Technically, you won't find a private private airport receiving FAA money. Right. Right. Okay. All and right. It, we'll put- it only it only applies if the uh, grant assurance agreement is still in effect, and those usually last twenty years. Yeah. We'll put the uh, link to the story in the uh, show notes. It, it is interesting um, to hear a little bit more detail on what the FAA is thinking is here, and and the discussion of alternatives is interesting as well. Uh, let's see now, David, a couple weeks ago, we started to talk about, uh, the latest TSA, what I characterize as the TSA follies. Um, and, uh, and you said, hang on, let's put this off a week or so because there may be developments. Uh, have there been developments? What's the latest TSA, you know, what's the latest wisdom from the TSA? Well, they, uh, they have the other shoe that I expected to drop is not, uh, but the shoe that started, you know, that fell already that started the interest in this was the uh, Transportation Security Administration, our favorite terminally silly uh, uh, activity. Uh, they uh, published a notice of proposed rulemaking and NPRM in the government parlance to regulate maintenance facilities. And that includes 
mechanical shops, avionics shops, uh, with a uh, uh, fairly sweeping proposal uh, that would require, you know, background checks and, and access controls, uh, uh, kind of top to bottom. They say that it's nuanced and flexible to work with the small shops, particularly small shops that are far away from an airport, because their concern here is that suddenly maintenance shops will become uh, gateways for terrorists to sabotage aircraft, uh, you know, uh, either to come in and crash and hijack an airplane, steal an airplane, or sabotage it long term. And, and what what floors me here is this lack of recognition that all these airports, all these shops have been doing so much work on their own to secure their operations for all these years. And that one of the most secure things about a maintenance shop is that somebody has to look at that airplane and sign it off before it goes back into service. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm not sure how, of course, you know, that's going to be their trade secret, how they expect this uh, alleged sabotage potential to happen uh you know a mechanic's going to sneak something past the inspector or the inspector himself is going to be dirty or maybe maybe we've gone eight years without anything comparable like this happened and maybe nothing will happen because it's just way too chancy and complex for a bunch of bad guys that have already moved on to things beside airplanes yeah, you know, and Jeb, you're the one that educated about this, uh, educated us about this a long time ago. That this is all, not all, but this is largely about coming up with ways for this private bureaucracy to, you know, collect more fees and more government contracts. This, this is a, this is a self perpetuating. Uh, um, yeah, you want to hear? Here's my latest TSA horror story, if you horror story, if you will. I was talking with uh, the uh, chief chief CFI up at Southern Maine the other day, and we were talking about uh, a, a one of their sport pilot students who's a, a, a not a U.S. citizen, and I was asking about the whole process about how difficult it was to to jump through all the paperwork, bureaucratic hoops, and fingerprints, and background checks, and whatnot, so that this guy could learn how to fly, and 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 the chief CFI kind of tried to minimize the whole thing. Said, "Yeah, you know, we just did it, and it's you go through the step, and it's step one, step two, step three, step four. And, and I'm listening to it, and he's trying to characterize it as being no big deal. And I'm thinking, Man, this is just a horror story. This is awful, all right? No, it is a horror story. And then, but here's the real punchline: <laughs> is that um, take a drink, David? Is that uh, so? I said, like you, like you need to tell David to take. A drink. <laughs> I said, Thank you. Thank I you. said, okay. And and you know, there's like a big fee. I forget what it is. It's like. Uh, I want to say three hundred dollars. I don't. Whatever it is, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't like ten bucks. All right. The, the the prospective student had to pay the TSA, write the TSA a big check just to start the process. Okay. So then, this is uh, a student from out of out of the country. Yes. And so then I find. So he describes this whole process, and he's trying to say, you know, it's not a big deal, and we got it done, and he's learned how to fly. And I'm saying, okay, good. And then I said, but now is this transferable i said if this guy wants to for whatever reason decided to continue his training down at portsmouth all right can he pick up this paperwork and carry it down to portsmouth and the chief cfi says to me no he said he kind of smiles kind of laughs he says no he says as a matter of fact he says not only is it not transferable like in the midst of training for a particular rating but if 
this guy decides to go on for any other rating, every other rating he goes for, he's got to go through the whole process again, including writing the check, all right, and getting fingerprinted and getting background checked when he wants to go for his private, when he wants to go for his instrument, when he wants to go every step of the way, he's got to go back through TSA's procedure all over that's again. That's just, that's absurd, and I'll, I'll echo the, the absurdity of this and, and the repetitive uh, repetitiveness of it. Uh, as as listeners, of course, know, I, I knocked out my seaplane rating over the summer. Um, first time I'd added a rating in a couple of decades, actually. Um, and I was quite surprised at the bureaucracy I had to go through to add a seaplane rating. I had to basically, you know, give certificate number, first born male child, uh, uh, all the kind of stuff that you'd find, you know, you, you'd put, say, on a passport application. Um, the instructor had to go in and do some things to verify that he looked at my driver's license and all this kind of stuff, and all this is online, of course. Um, I'm sorry. Putting aside the fact that the TSA has crawled up my butt twice with fingerprints and background checks, for for unrelated extracurricular reasons, um, I've had a private certificate going on 35 years now. I've added ratings, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they know who I am. They have all these records. They, they've done all this. They did all this, you know, in the first couple of months after 9/11. Uh, um, the FAA did. They went through all of their their airman records and. And um, you know, looked at who who they had in there, compared it to no fly list, compared it to watch list, compared it to you know ten most one, and all this kind of stuff. They know all of this stuff already. This is just redundant. It's extra make work um, to make somebody somewhere feel good about this. That's all it is, and it's all it's ever going to be, especially when you're talking about a rated pilot. Um, someone coming in from overseas. Um, you slightly different situation, obviously. Obviously, you know, we want to get some fingerprints, maybe. Obviously, we want to, uh, you know, get some background information on, on the individual. Do we have to do that every, you know, especially if the individual is, is uh, uh, you know, going from ab initio up through ATP, do we have to do that for every single rating? I don't yeah, well, think so. Apparently, you can, we, once we establish that he's not a sport pilot terrorist, we're not exactly sure that he's not a private pilot terrorist. So, you know. Ah, uh, okay. We got to check them each step along the way. Anyways, all right, rant over. I think. Um, well, it, this is a remnant of those insane, power-hungry buttheads that ran the institution when it was set up. Yeah. Speak up, David. Come closer. I said this is a remnant no, of the you. insane buttheads that were in that set up this system to begin with. Unintentionally. Now, gave now we hear it with extra butthead. Yeah, I know. Really? All right. Here's a new one. Um, so this is a posting from the forums. Um, Merlin FAC, or Merlin FAC, uh, has posted a story about uh, the Palm Bay, Florida Police Department um, apparently are using a powered parachute, of all things, for some sort of police activities. And uh, he goes on about what he, th he thinks he, he proposes that perhaps it's a, a tax-funded boondoggle, and maybe it is. But here's the part that caught my attention. 
He seems to believe that, uh, he writes, uh, a question has come up, which some of us were wondering about, and we haven't found a clear-cut answer. Can government entities legal op- legally operate a public a public aircraft without an FAA-certified pilot at the controls? Basically what he's getting into, and he quotes some laws and some, some chapter and verse here, and he suggests that there's some bizarre loophole in the law that says that if if a government entity is operating a public aircraft, which I guess means public government-owned aircraft, uh, publicly owned, yeah. That that you don't have to be an FAA certified pilot to fly it. Oh, uh, it's better than that. What? If you're operating a public aircraft, none of the FARs really apply to you. Sure. Really? Are you serious? You, this yeah. is you. I've never heard this before. Yeah. So, it, why? <laughs> because. Because the uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, one one philosophy behind this is going to be that um, a, a let's say it's a state government um, has their own uh, reasons for operating the aircraft, and let's say things like um, you know uh, flying low over uh, uh, certain areas; those rules don't apply. Um, maybe maintenance rules shouldn't apply for various reasons. Uh, whether they're good, bad, or in different reasons, that's kind of the philosophy underlying the distinction between public and civil aircraft. Well, the the, the whole thing is rooted in uh, a, a belief by some of our politicians and some of our population that you should take every step imaginable and possible to preclude excess federal intrusion into the operation of state and local governments. And when the FAA Act was being debated and drafted and created, the public aircraft exemption, I believe, if I remember my history correctly, was uh, uh, a token to some people to make sure that they voted for the creation. So, so what you're saying is that is that uh, uh, requiring uh, these airplanes to be flown by by licensed trained pilots is somehow a violation of states' rights. Yep. Somehow. <laughs> this kind of goes back to the crazy bureaucracy thing we were talking about earlier. All right. Well, okay. I just, I would have, I thought, I'd never heard this before, but you guys, apparently hey, this hey, is real. I, huh? I, I'm reading, I'm not sure where this is. I'm not sure what the citation is. Uh, actually, uh, I don't want to read from that because I don't know where that came from. Um, there are, if, if you Google public aircraft, uh-huh. the third hit that comes up is on the NTSB side. It's a PDF. Um, and my my PDF reader is hosed tonight, um, but it it talks about this, and, and we'll try to download this and, and get a better uh, get a better handle on this. This dates from uh, 2001, actually. Um, and my browser is running very slowly tonight. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. This, well, this would give a little bit more information. I'll I'll sit here and, and try to go through this here a little bit while we're talking. Okay. Well, basically, in, in Merlin FAC, is, is, there's a paragraph here who, where he asked, so anyone know for sure, says, I've gathered that passenger-carrying public aircraft do require the pilots to have the appropriate FAA ratings. Uh, no. If they're flying people or aircraft in the service of a government entity that owns or operates the aircraft, the regulations don't apply. All of the regulations don't apply, except well, the, airspace. The, airspace is universal. 
So the uh, the rules of the road, you know, they there's suggestions from the FAA that you comply with pilot training and pilot currency and maintenance and all of that. But they don't have any real authority, uh, the way the, 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 the law is written, to enforce that on state governments, county governments, city governments. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeb. Well, what I was going to say, reading this, uh, some of this uh, NTSB report, says public aircraft, quote-unquote, refers to certain government aircraft operations. Uh, public aircraft status means, among other things, that an aircraft will not be subject to some of the regulatory requirements applicable to, quote, civil aircraft. Uh, although the precise statutory definition has changed over the years, public aircraft operations generally include law enforcement, low-level observation, aerial application, firefighting, search and rescue, biological or geological resource management, and aeronautical research. Um, punchline is that a lot of what uh, those of us flying civil aircraft have to deal with every day, the, the, the public aircraft operator may not. Generally, um, public aircraft operators, in other words, uh, um, state and municipal governments, will... Um, comply with FAA regulations. They'll have certificated pilots appropriately rated to, to operate the aircraft, etc. Um, in only one or two uh, instances will they um, be bending or, or breaking what might what, what are regs that would apply to civil aircraft. Generally associated with altitude, perhaps um, um, different different kinds of aircraft. Uh, uh, you know, for example. Um, they might be operating a uh, military surplus aircraft uh, that would not be eligible uh, to be flown as a civil aircraft. They're used, they're, they would be using that military surplus aircraft um, <clears throat> because it's cheap, because they got it for nothing, for example, um, or because it, it perhaps uh, suits a specific uh, operational need. Perhaps they need to operate it at a higher gross weight or, or a, a higher airspeed. Or something. I don't know. Um, but um, it does happen. It, uh, um, it most of the regs they comply with just because uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, but for anyone who wants to get a better uh, feel for uh, public aircraft operations and what the NTSB thinks about their safety, um, Google public aircraft. And the third hit is a uh, rather lengthy uh, PDF from the NTSB dated back in uh, 2001 mm. that has a lot, of, a lot of detail and a lot of information on this type of operation. Interesting. Okay. So we, uh, I mentioned in the last episode that, uh, that uh, Jeff Ward and I uh, decided to do an impromptu, very short-notice uh, UCAP meetup up here in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire. And uh, we literally, like, announced it on Monday, and it was going to happen on Saturday. And we thought, you know, it's going to be me and Jeff, and if maybe one or two people show up, that'd be cool. Well, well, we ended up with 11 people, uh, which it was just a great group. We had just a lot, a lot of fun. Two people flew in, and uh, the rest of us drove in, and uh, we hung out on the – because we arrived with 11 people, and, and it's a relatively small restaurant there, the Midfield Cafe at, uh, at uh, Nashua. 
So we had to wait a while for them to assemble uh, 11 seats for us altogether. But we had a good old time. It was a beautiful day. I mean, particularly for November, but even it was a very, very pleasant day. We were standing out. They have a second. It's on the second level of this uh, FBO building. And there's a deck out front uh, right on the uh, overlooking the ramp. And we were just standing out there talking and watching the airplanes come and go. And and then went in to have our breakfast. And we had a good old time talking about this and that. And uh, that's where the the question about... uh, what was the question I asked earlier uh, about Cessna? Uh, Cessna LSA is hurting the market. Uh, it was one of the discussion topics um, around the table. We just had a, a great time, uh, a good group of people. Um, so we, uh, I guess, two people flew in. John Wellington flew in from uh, from. I keep saying White Plains. It's Westchester County, I think, is the actual name of the airport. He came up in his Trinidad, and we were admiring his Trinidad. He actually uh, brought a friend from another listener friend from uh, from White Plains, and then he stopped at Norwood to pick up uh, 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 R. Felty, uh, another uh, uh, forum participant and listener, and. Uh, and uh, uh, Felty's a big uh, video guy, and so he was shooting videos in the cockpit while they were flying, and during the uh, during the the uh, the actual meetup. So he post he's posted some videos on YouTube. We had a lot of fun there. Um, the the uh, other airplane that flew in was not simply a Piper Cub; it was a no electrical system Piper Cub. He flew it down oh, cool. from from uh, mid Vermont. From uh, if you're familiar with the New England area, he flew it down from Vermont just over the line from from Lebanon and and uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, so a little bit of a flight, apparently a bit over an hour to uh, to get down there um, in his no electric system, no radio, all right, Cub. and uh, uh, That's the way they usually are. Yeah. And, Real Cubs. But, I mean, he didn't even have he didn't even have a handheld in here. I mean, he was like wearing headphones, uh, uh, you know, some Dave Clarks just, just to kind of, you know. Uh, uh, right. They weren't plugged into anything. No, they were just to kind of protect his ears <laughs> a little bit, you know. And, uh, um and so uh, we were all out in the ramp looking at the Trinidad, and then we said, and he had parked the the Cub kind of way down the way. He wasn't really familiar with the airport, and he wasn't talking to the to the ground controllers, obviously. So he parked it where he thought he should park it, and he was on a on a piece of grass down the uh, down the ramp away. So we all trooped on down the ramp and looked at the uh, Cub, and we're oohing and on and taking pictures and. Uh, and then he was getting ready to leave, and so uh, he announced that he was going to, you know, hand he hand props the uh, the cub all by himself. And uh, so we said, oh, "Well, we got to get this." So so Felty gets his camera out and he starts shooting video, and uh, another one of the videos that's posted on YouTube and that I actually then uh, uh, embedded on the uh, UCAP homepage is uh, the video of him hand propping the cub and then climbing. And he did it from behind the prop. He did, which always struck right. me as being the smart way to do it if you're all by yourself. Oh, yeah. You know. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, so he uh, he hand propped the the engine. Uh, felt he was actually kind of kind here. Um, it took a few more tries than we see in the video to get it started uh, for whatever reason. But uh, he just calmly kept working at it, and he got it started and uh, climbed on board and waved at us and then taxied out. And uh, we were all kind of like, "Why?" Yeah, because we're going, "Hey, look, they're going to use the uh, signal lights," you know. So we're all trying to looking at the uh, looking at the uh, tower cab, trying to see them shoot the lights and at the guy. And then we're and then we get into the conversation of, "Okay, who really knows what the lights mean?" All right, we're going to have to look. <laughs> And yeah, uh, there'd be a quiz after. The well, we were curious it. whether the controllers had to look it up. You know. Uh, oh, but, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Today on runway three, the blue light special, a yellow cub. Please come <laughs> to the flashing blue light. Yeah. So, uh, 
So that was another, uh, and then and then a few of us hung out. Some of us had to leave at this point, but a few of us hung out and walked around the ramp and looked at the airplane. This it's a nice airport. I mean, you can just tell if you if you want to get a, a flavor of it, just go to Google Maps and look at it from overhead and see all the airplanes that are parked on this ramp. There's a lot of airplanes at this, and look at all the hangars. I mean, the entire length of the runway has hangars along one side. Um, it's a really cool airport. I like it a lot. So what you uh, mean the FAA lets them put airplanes in hangars on the field? What a concept, huh? Did did that restrict development? So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, do, do they taxi these airplanes through the fence? Yeah, we had a good old time. I don't want to talk about the fence because I don't want to get in any trouble. But the fence at Nashua is a very very reasonable thing, if you ask me. Um, what a good time! I want to thank the listeners who came out, and uh, and uh, I, I, we're now thinking that maybe making not making a big production out of these meetups uh, works too. So uh, we may may do these more often without making a big huge deal out of it. And and uh, whoever shows up shows up, and we'll have a good time. So thank you to everybody who came out. I had, I enjoyed it, and it was it was fun to re meet the people I'd met before, and the few newcomers I met was cool too. A couple episodes ago, we told the story of the uh, TSA recalling an airliner because they suddenly realized that they had not uh, properly uh, searched or inspected or cleared one of the passengers who, oh, by the way, happened to be a TSA employee. Um, A listener uh, by the name of uh, DJ Torrente or Torrent posted in the uh, uh, in the forums that uh, he he challenges this whole story he thinks this doesn't pass the sniff test um, he writes how does the TSA know to a man who is and is not screened and whether they board their boarded their flight uh, they check photo IDs against boarding pass and screening station for confirmation but I don't see that that information is being recorded do they compare that against the passenger manifest to determine who actually got on the plane are there people like Tom Hanks characters in the terminal living inside the sterile area of the airport that TSA needs to keep tabs on the ability inability in, the ability slash inability of TSA to know whether a given individual on a particular flight did or did not pass through security screening as as opposed to blanket screening such that everybody in the sterile zone has passed security is what sets off my, quote, blowing snow, unquote, detector on this case, Mm -hmm. Um, even more than the accepted fact that TSA employees cannot be trusted. Um, That's just a a bit from his his article. He makes a good point. Um, He he makes a very good point, and and I I agree with him. There's, There's a lot of things that are wrong with that story um unfortunately we that was the only instance of of coverage of that particular event and i'm going to call it an event because we truly really just don't know what happened there um we should have been more critical of the of the media outlet reporting this uh on 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 two or three levels and and i i agree with dj he's right um one i don't know if it's a quibble or a comment um my limited and, and not very recent experience with TSA tells me that um, everybody who goes onto the airplane in their mind has to have gone through screening. Um, whether it's the captain, the flight attendant, the, the um, air marshal, the odd TSA employee um, traveling for personal or professional reasons, um, their mindset is everybody has to go through screening. How and whether, in fact, you know, I, 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 ultimately we have to really kind of question, I think, the, the, the premises of, of, this, of that particular news story. 
uh, how and whether um, this event happened as that media outlet described it, I think we just have to question the totality of it. Yeah. The, the, the punchline, though, in my mind, is TSA's track record is so abysmal. And, and daily we hear more and more just oh-my-God kinds of stories about TSA and, and the nonsense that they, that they uh, get away with and the nonsense that they promulgate. Um, I think the punchline to me is, sure, why couldn't this happen? Why shouldn't this happen if TSA is involved in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you can imagine it being foobarred, these people can squared. do it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Foobar squared. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, here's a sad plane crash. As a rule, I don't really, unless there's some notable lesson to be learned, I don't talk about plane crashes. But uh, there's a story from, uh, let's see now, KTVI. What is that? It's uh, When does a plane crash not be uh, an off-field landing if everybody walks away? Well, yeah, we've had this conversation before. My original idea was that the airplane had to be 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 basically still intact. Um, um, but you make a good point that if everyone survives, it's good. Um, that that's a good thing too, and I agree with that. Um, the thing that caught my attention about this particular story is the sad aspect of this is that it's a steerman that crashed and and is pretty banged up. If, I, oh, I, don't know. I know Creve Coeur. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's one, of your, one of your one of your favorite uh, um, detours going to and from St. Louis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Uh, it's over on west of St. Louis. It's uh, kind of north of uh, Spirit of St. Louis, and it's home to one of the most amazing collection of between the World Wars flying hardware uh, that you'll find anywhere in Airworthy. Uh, and the people that, uh, for the most part, that hang her there, that fly out of there, are, uh, uh, are are real devotees of the twin wing antique, like our steerman friend here. Yeah. L- let me ask. Let me play devil's advocate for a second and ask whether or not um, you know it's it's so sad when these precious you know dwindling fleet of special airplanes, uh, when another one is damaged, perhaps irreparably um should should we be flying these airplanes they're, they're precious parts of our history you know or, or or should we be very very picky about who we allow to fly them well, there's a lot there's of steermen around i mean why wouldn't yeah, we there's fly a lot steer? of steermen too yeah, there's a lot of steer- i think i think the the overall question is is uh one that should be asked i don't know that it should be asked of steermen okay um uh, you know there, there was a story a, there, there was a crash there was a crash I want to say five years, five or so years ago now. Dave, you might remember this one. Um, it was a, a then Confederate Air Force uh, aircraft crashed. Um, it, it was a one of a kind. Uh, last re- last flying example of it, I believe. Um, <clears throat> and I don't remember where it crashed. I don't remember what kind it was either. I want to say it was a P sixty one Black Widow. Um, uh huh. And um, basically totaled the airplane, killed the two people on board. Uh, don't remember where this was or how long ago it was. We can we can you know Google that research a little bit too. Um, and that engendered the same kinds of questions. And, and in my mind, you know, if it's the last surviving flyable example of the type, every now and then, yeah, it should be flown so that you know we can we can uh, um, 
remember how it sounded, remember what it looked like when it flew. Um, but some, some of the some of the flights that uh, are conducted with those kinds of airplanes perhaps shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be made. Yeah, now, I mean, just recently, devil's, ad, devil's advocate here though is who's going to make the decision? Where do you where do you where do you draw the line on the dwindling numbers of these aircraft? Who do, who makes the decision on who do, who can fly it and when and where? And um, what justification do they use? And I don't want to be the guy in that in that particular position. You know, um, and I think we I, all just have to exercise some judgment. Yeah, yeah Dave. I think we all just have to exercise some judgment here and and decide. You know, what is is the most judicious use of this precious asset? Is it is it sitting on the ramp? Is it being jacked up or suspended from a museum ceiling, or is it in fact being flown? I I like to think that these aircraft should be flown, but um, not on an everyday basis. Okay, because there was another one fairly recently, within the last year. Um, what's I'm blanking on the name of the World War One grass strip in upstate New York. That's a museum and uh, Rhinebeck Aerodrome. Rhinebeck Aerodrome, right? Um, and uh, someone crashed one of the uh, one of the, the triplane. You know, yeah, the, tri- the Fokker triplane, Fokker I guess. Triplane. Yeah, I, I think um, in the case of the. And while I'm sure one of our listeners will be more than happy to chime in and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I think that was a replica. Okay. Well, they they that I believe was a replica, but they've had their own incidents with uh, only ones the the only one of something or other right. over the years and have contributed to the to the heat in this ongoing debate. Uh, when a P-38 went down with Jeff Ethel uh, out in California a few years ago. That that reconstituted the debate. Should we be flying these things at all? Uh, I don't see how we cannot. If we want want them to be meaningful exhibits of the the history they, they, they come from, uh, th- that doesn't happen with them just sitting in in a static display somewhere, as great as they may make the diorama. Now, maybe the solution is well, if you can raise the money to restore the old airplane to flying condition, uh, can you raise enough money to build a replica? Mm-hmm. Well, how about and this? Exhibit I mean- the original and fly the replica. Uh, but in the interim. You know, uh, and so many of these airplanes are privately owned. What are you going to tell somebody that owns it privately? Exactly. No, exactly. we don't want you to fly it because it's it's too rare. Well, no, but I think, all right, listen, we, we routinely have different levels of training for different types of airplanes, all right? You have, you, you required extra training to fly tail draggers. You required extra training to fly uh, uh, complex, your high performance, twin, et cetera, seaplane, et cetera, et cetera. Why not another type of license for, you know, the 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 precious antique sign off or something like that all right well, and and as far as the fact of, that what, te- what other than the qualifications to that to 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 fly that airplane competently would you require that would be specific to an old airplane I, i'm not a cfi i don't know but certainly there are issues that are particular to these these older special unique you know different kinds of airplanes and let somebody who knows what they're doing design the uh, the uh, the uh, curriculum we, we we already have a lot of that in place, and that's yeah. Uh, yeah, um, sure. 
through FAA letters of authorization for various types of aircraft. For example, um, and, and I used this as an example many years ago, and, and again, I'm going to probably fall down flat on my face. Um, we, we've got, you know, the 12-5 rule. Anything weighing more than 12,500 pounds you have to have, or a turbojet, you have to have a type rating for. There are a lot of World War II-era aircraft that uh, you have to have a type rating for. Um, there are others, uh, because of their um, not being um, uh, standard airworthiness certificate, not being uh, um, certificated by the FAA, you have to have a letter of authorization to, to operate them. Uh, and that's just the, the federal bureaucracy's uh, side of the coin. Um, the, uh, yeah, you uh, find some of that stuff Air- from the insurance companies, too. Right. The, yeah. Well, you, you can fly an airplane without having to insure it, but uh, uh, the Commemorative Air Force is, is uh, uh, for all their uh, um, trials and tribulations over the years, um, they have um, a pretty good network of people who uh, police each other uh, on, on flying these airplanes, and you have to um, uh, be checked out in those airplanes uh, by people who know what they're doing, per- perhaps people who flew them in, in, in action, in combat, uh, before you can fly them yourself. Um, it's not a perfect system. And, and no system involving humans is going to be perfect. Um, but it's probably about as good as we're going to get. Okay. Um, I'll buy that. I don't know. I'll buy that. David, you uh, you were talking with a buddy of yours at, uh, at uh, Mid-Continent about, about antiquated technology. <laughs> <laughs> my, my phrase, not theirs. But go ahead. What's my, the story my here? Buddy's- my old buddy Spence, who's uh, uh, worked many years as a, a maintenance technician, mechanic, uh, wrench turner over at Dead Cow International, uh, sent me an email uh, today asking this question. He said, uh, why do I need a Captain Midnight decoder ring to read aviation text weather? I understand that in the day of the teletype, that saving a character or two was significant. Let me throw in here as a as as, as an aside, some of those symbols, some of those shorthand came together because there was no character for some of the stuff that the teletype did. Anyway, he goes on, but now my cell phone can download full video movies with complete Dolby surround sound. So why do I need to know a code for smoke on a metor metar or chaff? Would not safety be improved by a full word or even better, a sentence like visibility may be degraded by smoke due to range burning? This is mostly a rhetorical question with so many qualified people unemployed. Why does TSA seem to hire fast food rejects who could not master the you want fries with that skill? (laughs) He's Uh, one of our guys, apparently. Yeah, right. Okay, go ahead. uh, Well, yeah, Spence is is pretty much a uh, call it like he sees it kind of guy. You know, there there really is no reason anymore. Uh, Spence is right. Once upon a time, the the limited capacity of chalotype, both in volume and in uh, uh, its ability to present words and and and, and characters, uh, kind of dictated that you create a shorthand for all of this stuff, but. Teletype machines as weather transmission paths to between flight service stations 
pretty much went away with the consolidation of the flight service network in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Couple of thoughts. One, just going back to this this antique aircraft thing, I mentioned the the crash of the one of a kind uh, uh, several years ago. Yeah. Um, this was a this was the, the apparently the the only remaining uh, Hinkle uh, HE one eleven. Okay. Uh, I I haven't got all the details on it, but that was the type. Yeah. Uh, okay. Of aircraft involved here. Um, second item. Um, the, the, the commenter's correct, and, and, and let me expand this into uh, NOTAMs, please. Okay. Uh, yes. Because, because uh, I ran it on this a couple of times back in 102 when, when all of a sudden to be a pilot you had to re- learn to read in all caps uh, and, and read, uh, I don't know, 256 characters at a time in paragraph. I don't know what the, what the breakdown on that, on, on, on parts one through six of... Uh, various notams are and why they have to be transmitted in that fashion. Um, there's a couple of, uh, when it comes to METARs and TAFs, there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, one is we have to kind of establish a low common denominator here because while um, uh, most of the people uh, uh, listening to this this podcast and most of the people flying in the U.S., um, English is the, their first and only language. <clears throat> but when we talk about international operations, that's not the case. And uh, the, the, the decoder ring uh, is, is kind of a, a, a common language, if you will, um, between um, um, pilots of, of various nationalities and pilots who speak different languages. Another item here has to do with... Um, in-cockpit um, transmission of, of data. Um, I, 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 I'm certainly not an airline pilot uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but the modern airline uh, cockpit does have the ability to transmit uh, and receive text data uh, through ACARs and through other uh, mechanisms, uh, and that data is printed out on strips of paper, and it's abbreviated for reasons of, of conserving space, conserving bandwidth, and, and conserving, obviously, paper in the cockpit. So th- those are some real-time, you know, contemporary reasons why we're still putting up with abbreviations in METARs and TAFs. Um, that's not to say that uh, we shouldn't be using other tools. Uh, and, and especially when we're, you know, sitting in our, our computer desk early on in the morning when we're going to go fly, when we've got all the resources, all the bandwidth, all the storage space that we could possibly want, uh, there's no reason at all why we have to wade through and get our secret decoder rings out for METARs and TAS. And, of course, if you're going to do app briefing and, and a lot of other you know, weather briefing services will do this for you, they will decode all of this. My problem is the decoding is not perfect. And sometimes I find myself scratching my head saying, well, what does this really mean? Um, and maybe I should just go back to the undecoded text, and, and, and that way at least I know what I'm working from. Um, a lot of it comes down to, with what, you, to, to what you're comfortable with. And uh, in my case, being the old fogey that I am, um, the, I understand, you know, BR means mist simply because I had to look it up you know, about 10 years ago when they changed over, uh, about 15 years ago maybe now. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and that uh, 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 BS means blowing snow. 
Um, but uh, <laughs> um, no, I, the, the, the commenter is absolutely correct that we we should be rethinking this. But uh, there are some reasons why we still have to have that secret decoder ring. I don't think NOTAMs, however, really should apply, um, especially these, these FTC NOTAMs that go on for four and five paragraphs. Um, they're, they're a legal document. I get that. They have to be worded in such a fashion to, to, um, uh, to, to advise uh, operators of, of what they're supposed to be uh, concerned with. I get that, too. Um, but the formatting, the, uh, the all caps can go away anytime anybody wants to make it go away. The formatting needs to be changed. There needs to be um, kind of a, a memorandum style, if you will, where um, uh, in, you know, 25 words or less describes what the, the, the subject of the notum, certain keywords are used, um, the, the, uh, the airspace or the, the, the area of the country involved, um, the type of facility or the type of airspace being, uh, uh, being notumed, whatever. There's a lot of different ways to skin this cat, and I got to think somebody somewhere is is scratching their head. Maybe there's a working group set up within the FAA to tackle this. Uh, come on, guys, time's a wasting. We need to we need to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Yep. Shout outs. Let's see now. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit here. Uh, I wanted to call attention to a website of uh, one of our listeners. Uh, and uh, it's called 160knots.com, 160knots.com. Uh, this is a website where the guy writes about his adventures in his Balanca Super Viking. Uh, and uh, there's just a lot of fascinating stories here and pictures. And uh, uh, he's just done some really nice things here, uh, sharing his, his, his flying adventures with us. And so I just wanted to uh, call people's attention to it. And uh, if you're a blog reader uh, or if you just want to see some cool aviation pictures uh, and videos, Videos, uh, go check out uh, 160knots.com, and uh, and this guy I'm looking for his name here. I don't see his name on the web page, so wait a minute. It might be Frank Holbert. Uh, so uh, pretty cool, pretty cool. David, you wanted to uh, remind us to get our airman certificates uh, replaced. Well, the deadline is uh, March 31st, 2010, and if you're still flying around with your paper certificate on April 1, no fooling, it won't be legit anymore. So, uh, cost two bucks. We'll have a link on how you can get the process started. Uh, part of the reason for this is new security laws, even though the uh, plastic FAA document doesn't have to have your photograph on it, you are required to carry a government-issued photo ID. So that and your driver's license makes you official. It's a twofer. Uh, but we're also required in the United States to meet some international obligations uh, to show that our pilots are all competent in English. In which case, when you get your new plastic certificate, one of the things that will say on it is English proficient. So you got until March 31st. I would want to uh, beat the rush if you haven't already done this. Uh, you could make it a $2 stocking stuffer to yourself for the Christmas yeah. holidays. Follow the link. Get your plastic rating card. Go. Or go out and add a rating, and you'll get a new one. Yeah. Period. All right. Through the magic of, uh, of technology, Jeb's on the telephone now because <laughs> Skype's just failed us one too many times because tonight. Because the, the, the 
technology magic is falling down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the magic is, there's no magic tonight. Uh, uh, let's see now. No so, magic anymore. Where are we here? I've lost track here. Dave, you talked about, oh, the license. Oh, I wanted to mention that, uh, where is it here? Um, listener Martin Santic pointed out to us that um, if you're a Facebook person, there is now a fan group for Line and Kugel Brewing Company on Facebook. All right. So if you want to support your Line and Kugel uh, Brewing Company uh, 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 on the internet uh, in uh, in social media, you can go to Facebook and find the uh, Jacob Line and Kugel Brewing Company fan group uh, on Facebook and. Uh, uh, I'm not exactly a Facebook person, but if you are, support Lining, because Lining's is a good thing. Jeb, you got any shout-outs? Uh, to the uh, the guy who invented the tin cup and the string uh, that connects my computer with the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. Dude, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> I know, I know. It's sad when the telephone sounds better than the uh, voice over IP. But, uh, exactly, and this is a pretty cheap phone. Yeah. So, anyways, all right, David. Any last words? Done. Done. That's Jeb Burnside. He's an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people? When you're on the internet, Jeb, where can people find you there? The internet? What is it? What is that? Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm confused. Yeah. It's um, a series of tubes. <laughs> it, it, I, I think there's this website called AviationSafetyMagazine.com that's supposed to be my day job, but. I'll never get a chance to look at it ever again. Um, last time I checked, also, I had a personal website at jeburnside.com, but, you know, again, uh, uh, I probably physically have to track down the computer and, and slide a, a USB stick into it to change anything. There you go. Uh, occasionally, avweb.com. I know that site stays up pretty often. Okay. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where are you on the Internet? Oh, the, 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 uh, the personal website's davehigdon.biz. Uh, I'm at avbuyer.com. Click on the digital edition of World Aircraft Sales, uh, aea.net. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our excellent show notes uh, and for helping me organize uh, New England uh, UCAP meetups. Thanks to uh, Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips that we use. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be we're very gonna, much. We're going to put up another tip jar for so Jeb can get a real internet. Jeb can get a real internet. Uh, it doesn't need to be very well. Maybe it needs to be a little bit more these days. But, uh, you know, 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. By the way, thanks to I – won't, I won't embarrass anybody by naming names, but thank you to the uh, listener at our, our, uh, our uh, Nashua, New Hampshire meetup who uh, put a $10 bill in my hand, which I promptly put into our little tip jar. So uh, we appreciate that. And don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? I was going to say, if you want to live long and prosper, go fly in because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's enough. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. Anything. Just don't let him sing anymore. 
GTFM.